Well, if you're new, welcome. My name is Joey. So glad that you're here tonight as we continue in this uh, series of messages uh, titled Awakening. But before we jump into that, I've got a quick commercial for you. Um, you may have noticed this on your seats as you've come in the last couple of weeks. If you haven't found one, try to find it, locate it. This is a little card. It's got an X on it, which is a date on the back of it. And uh, I, we just thought maybe you guys were wondering, like, what are these? You know, these have been on your seats for the last couple of weeks. So might as well have thought that we would address them. No, we are not starting like a hip club in the city. Um, this is actually an invite to a very important day in the life of our church coming up um, in just 21 days from now on, on September the 10th, 2023, we are going to be launching into a vision season and a vision series that is going to set the trajectory for the next 10 years of ministry here at Elevate City Church. And it is going to be one of those can't miss Sundays. And so I want for you to like circle it on your calendar, like set a reminder. Reminder. If you had plans to go out of town, cancel those plans, invite your friends, make sure that no matter what, you are here on this date because this date is gonna be a day that 10 years from now, you're gonna say, I wish I was in the room when it all happened. I wish I was in the room when that vision got cast. And so I uh, wanna encourage you to make plans to be there. It is going to be so significant in the life of our church. Being that we're just 21 days away, here's what I would love for you to do. I would love for you to set a reminder or an alarm on your phone for 9, 10, a.m. and 9, 10 p.m. This is the part of the sermon where you actually pull your phone out and you set an alarm for 9 a.m. and uh, 9, 10 a.m. and 9, 10 p.m. And every time that alarm goes off, I just want for you to pray for what God is going to do on September the 10th at Elevate City Church. I want for your heart and your affection and your emotion to be stirred up for what Jesus has in store for his, his bride, his people, his church. And so if you would just make a commitment to pray with me for the next 21 days, two times a day, that God is going to do something epic, incredible, amazing, exceeds expectation, every other hyperbolic adjective that I could insert right there on September the 10th, um, you're gonna wanna be here and you are not gonna wanna miss it. Let me hear you say September the 10th. September the 10th. Touch your neighbor, say be there or be square. All right, commercial over. So let's start with something controversial tonight, shall we? Cultural, conventional Christianity is failing. Cultural, conventional Christianity is failing. Now, in a couple of weeks from now, I am going to put up charts and graphs and tell you about statistics and trends, and I'm gonna prove that reality to you, but here's the truth, you already know it. There's already this like gnawing sense within you that something has gone wrong in the church that the way that we practice religion in the West, that something's gotten left out, something seems to be missing. There is this longing in the upcoming generation for something that's more, for something that feels real, for something that's got authenticity to it, for something that's got depth in it, for something that is more than just going through the motions of living one Sunday high to the next. There's gotta be more than marginal morality and the occasional awkward Bible study and church attendance when it's convenient. There's got to be more than this. And so I don't need to show you any graphs because many of you, you feel it in your soul that something's gone wrong. And because of that, we see the deterioration of church in the West. We see church attendance declining. We see more churches closing than opening. But, but you know that, you feel that in your soul that 
cultural, conventional Christianity is failing. But let me also say this. Not only is cultural, conventional Christianity failing, also the secular cultural narrative is failing too. The secular cultural narrative is failing too. Right before our very eyes, we're seeing something happen within society where what happens when you live in a society that tells you you can sleep with whoever you want, be whatever you want, do whatever you want. If you work hard enough, you can get all that you want and you'll be happy in the end. What happens when you live with that being the message, the prevailing message in society, but then you get it? You get everything that you've ever wanted. You get the house and the spouse and the dream job and you've got plenty of money and you've traveled the world and yet it's still not enough in the end. There is still this gnawing, this aching, this longing in your soul for more. Well, I can tell you what happens when you find yourself in, the pl in that place where both of those narratives fail. You find yourself in need of awakening, amen? Of going, there needs to be an awakening of sorts in my generation. There needs to be an awakening in our country, an awakening in our family, an awakening within the church. You know, that position is the exact place, the precise place that Nicodemus finds himself in our story tonight. Nicodemus is this man that I cannot wait to share, uh, to, to share his life with you. We are in this series studying awakenings. And if I were to tell you about some of my favorite awakenings throughout history or biblically, I would tell you that in the top three of my favorite stories of awakening, it's gotta be our boy right here, Nick at Night. <laughs> it's got to be the man, Nicodemus. It's got to be what happens in this encounter that he has with Jesus in John chapter 3. I just love this story. I love the progression of it. I love the nuance within it. And I love the climactic conclusion at the end of it. I love the story of Nicodemus. And so without further ado, John chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do what you do unless God is with him. Now, you might not initially see it, but cultural, conventional religion is failing Nicodemus. It's failing him. It's falling out from under him. The ground of the church that he grew up in is crumbling beneath his feet. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a small sect within Judaism that practiced strict adherence to the Mosaic law. These guys had most of the Old Testament memorized. They, they knew it by heart. They observed it very strictly. They practiced the Levitical law to a T. These guys, they fasted two times a week. They prayed two hours of the day. They gave 10% of their income to the temple. They were about as devout as devout could be. And this small sect of conservatives, of traditionalists, of fundamentalists had massive influence within Jewish society. And so Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Like Sunday school star number one, check, got it. But not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Let me hear you say Sanhedrin. 
Now, the Sanhedrin was a Jewish ruling political council whose 70 members served as the Jewish Supreme Court. However, most of these would be made up of Sadducees. The Sadducees were people who were the aristocrats of the day. They were typically collaborating with Rome and trying to control the temple. And so the majority of the Sanhedrin was made up of the Sadducees, but a small sect was the Pharisees, one of which was Nicodemus. So Nicodemus having both of this, um, the, these check marks, not just being a Pharisee, but also a member of the Sanhedrin, gives Nicodemus power and prestige. It gives him clout within society. Like Nicodemus has not just checked the religious box, Nicodemus has checked the cultural box. Nicodemus is someone. Like people know Nicodemus. Like they, they know who he is. They know where he lives. When he's out in the streets, people are trying to get selfies with Nicodemus. Like he is a big deal in ancient times. Jesus would later on say that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel or the teacher of teachers. Meaning, translation, Nicodemus is not just a pastor. Nicodemus is like a celebrity pastor, y'all, okay? Nicodemus is like preachers and sneakers, but like the antiquated version. So the Sanhedrin and sandals, but nice sandals, like Birkenstocks, okay? He's like the talk of the town. And so here's Nicodemus, this guy who is as religiously pious as you can be. He is conservative. He's a traditionalist. He's practiced the religion. He's got it all memorized. He's doing it to a T. He's in temple every day. He's got all of this memorized. He's got clout within society. People know who he is. He has influence within culture. People want to know what he thinks. People are curious about his take on the Torah. They're very interested in Nicodemus's way of life. And so there he is. Just imagine him in modern times with his WWJD HWLF bracelets. Just imagine him cruising on his camel, listening to 104.7 The Fish. He's there in the morning by his bedside with a perfect attendance church record. He would beat you in the Bible drill every single time. He's doing his morning devotional, Moses Calling, and he's got his little latte art that he takes a picture of. He's as culturally Christian as culturally Christian gets. He's got the bumper sticker, he wears the t-shirts, and he watches The Chosen every night before bed. This is Nicodemus. Do you see him? Do you have a feel for him? Do you sense him? He sits on the board of a nonprofit organization. He has a little jar that sits on the top of his refrigerator that people have to put dollars in if they say curse words. This is Nicodemus. He has dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and checked all the box of religion. And there isn't a single one of you who wouldn't wanna trade places with him. He is famous within society. He's got clout, he's got honor, people know him. And yet there is Nicodemus, a Pharisee a member of the Sanhedrin, a teacher of Israel, and he comes to Jesus by night. Did you catch that? Don't miss that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, in the middle of the night. Why does, why does Nicodemus come at night? Why does he come at night? Well, I think that there are two reasons that Nicodemus comes at night. Reason number one is because John's gospel has this ongoing theme of light and darkness all throughout it. Um, the gospel message, it starts with this pronouncement that the light has come into the world, that at the birth of Jesus, the light has broken into the world. But the verdict is this, that men love darkness instead. 
that the darkness has not understood it. And so all throughout the Gospel of John, you see these contrasting ideas, these motifs of light and darkness. And light is synonymous with Jesus or with truth or with spiritual awakening. And night or darkness is synonymous with spiritual sleep or sin or death or spiritual darkness. And so that's one of the reasons that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. But I think that there's another reason a more juicy reason, a more drama-filled reason, if you will. I think that Jesus comes to, or Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because he doesn't want to see it. He doesn't want anybody to see him talking to Jesus. You see, Nicodemus is supposed to have all the answers. He's not supposed to have questions. People line up to ask Nicodemus what he thinks. How could he go and ask the son of a carpenter what he thinks? You see, Jesus was a nobody at this point in time. Jesus was not a part of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He definitely wasn't a member of the Sanhedrin. He was born in Nazareth. He was hanging out with crazy granola John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who's out on the fringes wearing like camel's hair, shopping at Goodwill, eating locusts and honey, only shopping at Whole Foods. That's John the Baptist. That's who Jesus is hanging out with. And here comes Nicodemus in the middle of the night going to this little rogue on the margins, Jewish rabbi, who's seemingly a nobody to ask him a question. Do you see the humility of Nicodemus? Doesn't matter how old he is or how much clout he has or how much of the Bible he's memorized. There is this humility within him, that, this gnawing within him that goes, I think I've missed something. I think that there was a sermon that I might have slept through. I think that there was a blank that I didn't fill in, a box that I didn't check. There's this gnawing, this aching, this unavoidable longing in my soul for more, for more than I've experienced, for more than I've heard about, for more than I've participated in. And so Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. You see, his age and his position within society, people's perception of him religiously, that sends him into the dark because he's terrified of what people might think. He's terrified that people might know that this person who's been sitting in church for decades, this person who serves on the connect team and who's been a group leader and maybe who's gone to seminary and who's maybe written a book and maybe who's supposed to have it all figured out actually doesn't have it figured out. You see, there is this dirty little secret that most religious elitists will never let you in on. And it's this, it's that there becomes this problem when you start to know more and more. When you start to become an expert in your field, when people start to look to you as the person who's supposed to have the answers to all of their questions, you get to a point in your spiritual journey where you've acquired so much information that something starts to press on your heart. And it's this reality. I just, I, I wanna try to articulate it for you in case it ever happens for you. Where, where this starts to rub against you. I know more than I actually live. I know way more than I actually live. There, there's this, these concepts about God and the kingdom and life and the Bible and faith. And I could tell it to you in the Greek or in the Hebrew and I could sort it out for you systematically, but there's this massive chasm between what I know intellectually and what I'm experiencing in my life. 
And I think Nicodemus finds himself in that place in the middle of the night, and he just can't shake it anymore. He goes, I can't sit through another sermon. I can't just read another book. I need something that's real, something that's transcendent, that's something that breaks through this like cold, dead, sterile heart. And so Nicodemus finds himself at Jesus' feet in the middle of the night because he's completely restless, but he's terrified out of his mind of what others might think. And I think that it's possible that many of you are in that exact situation tonight. You are restless, and you're restless in a million different ways. You're restless in your job, and you're restless in your relationships, and you're restless in your faith, and you're just wondering if there's more maybe out there somewhere than what you're experiencing right now, but you're terrified. You're terrified to let anyone in or to let anyone know or to let anyone behind the curtain or to ask life's tough questions because at this point you should have had it figured out. You should be there by now. But there's something in you even now that's going, I'm not, but I want to be. And I just want to tell you tonight, friend, that one of the first parts of an awakening happening is the crystallization of discontent. When that aching and that longing becomes so clear that you can name it and that you can't shake it, you may well be on your road to an awakening. When there's this restlessness, this tossing and turning within you that causes you to get up in the middle of the night and to do something that is so outside of your comfort zone and to go to a place that may get you laughed at, then it may be that in that place, you're actually on the verge of an awakening. You see, Nicodemus sees something in the life of Jesus that supersedes anything that he's learned in a classroom or experienced in the synagogue. Nicodemus says about Jesus, no one can do what you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus rec recognizes that there's a certain power and presence and authenticity to Jesus that he hasn't found anywhere else. And he goes, I want it. I need it. Nicodemus is feeling very, this very heavy weight that he has missed something. And he's willing to go back to Jesus again to see if he can find the answer to his questions. So this is what Jesus says, verse three. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, anytime that the Bible says truly, truly, you're gonna wanna pay attention to that. I know we spent some time last week talking about the third degree of repetition in Hebrew literature, but the second degree is still extremely important. There's no uh, punctuation. There are no exclamation points in, um, in the Greek. And so if, if an author or a speaker wanted to draw your attention to something, they would, they would say it twice to really emphasize it. And three times in this interaction, Jesus says, truly, truly. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that in this section where Jesus three times says truly, truly, that he gives us what has become the most famous scripture in the entire world, John 3, 16. It's like the whole time in this interaction, Jesus is going, pay attention, don't miss this. It's of utter importance. Like, get your eyes glued on what I'm getting ready to say. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see 
the kingdom of God. And this is what I love is that Jesus says, you're absolutely right, Nicodemus. There is something massive, huge, incredible that you have been missing. And it's called the kingdom of God. You have been settling. You have been, you've been like consolidated to. You have agreed to participate in a way less version of faith than what is actually available. You have reduced following me down to conventional, cultural religion. And I'm here today to tell you that there is something that is beautiful and that is expansive and it's called the kingdom of God. There's something more than cultural, conventional religion. There's something more than Sanhedrin or temple or the level of life you've been participating in. There is the kingdom of God. And I just want to announce to you today all over again that there is more to Jesus than meets the eye. That there is more than whatever dull, vanilla, sanitized version of faith that you've settled for. There is this kingdom, this expansive, beautiful kingdom that is expanding at the speed of light. It is more glorious and massive and eternal than you could begin to imagine. And I said it last week and I'll say it again. If you are bored with your faith, then God is bored too. Do not settle for conventional cultural Christianity when the offer is the kingdom. Truly, truly, I say to you today that there is a version of church that doesn't stop when the service ends. Truly, truly, I say to you today that there is an adventurous life that is not governed by your calendar, but by the still small voice of the spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you today that there is a kingdom that is full of joy and depth and life, and it's real. It is real. And truly, truly, I say to you today, it is all-encompassing, never-ending, always invading. It shows up in the hidden places and in the public places. It is the only place where true life is found, and it is worth dying for. And truly, truly, I say to you today, it only belongs to those who are born again. You will not see this unless you are born again. This Use of the word see, Jesus talks here about see, and then later he talks about entering. He goes, you are a far way off from the kingdom unless you're born again. Like you can't even see it. It's this idea that like the words that I'm talking about tonight, the the words that I'm using tonight, they're lost on you. You can't even see it. You don't even understand them. It's like I'm speaking a different language to you. Jesus is going, if you don't wake up, you can't see it. You won't have eyes for it. You're asleep to it. If you, and, and I just want to totally vouch for Jesus on this point tonight, okay? That until you have been born again, until you become truly awake to God, until you really see who Jesus really is, you're not going to see the value of this stuff. You're not going to see the point of this stuff. You're not going to see the beauty of it. You're not going to find pleasure in it. But once you're born again, it will become the treasure that your heart is after. Before I knew Jesus, I read the Bible, but I just didn't care. And before I woke up from conventional, cultural Christianity, I would sit in church and sing songs. They meant nothing to me. Before I actually woke up, I would go through the motion of repeating the words of a prayer that I saw other people say, but they were just empty words. Before I woke up and got born again, I would pass by homeless people on the side of the road and I would just keep on driving. 
not thinking twice. But then something happened, something that is supernatural and that is unexplainable and that is ineffable, it is beyond words. The Spirit of God came to live in my heart in such a way that what I couldn't see before, all of a sudden I saw as if I was seeing it for the very first time. I opened up the Bible and I just couldn't get enough of it. Doesn't mean that all of a sudden I understood it, but I wanted to, and I would just read and read and read and devour this thing for hours. I would sit in his presence and I would sing these songs and these lyrics that used to feel just empty to me. All of a sudden were full of meaning and promises and prayers. They were full of aches and feeling that I couldn't explain. I could take you now to places in my life that to you, they would just look natural. They would look normal. They would look insignificant. But to me, they look like altars. They look like these places where the kingdom of God broke in and where I was never the same. I could take you to a youth room with some weird paint on the walls and a bunch of stains on the carpet, and I could play a song for you in that youth room. And you'd be like, cool. But it would bring me to my knees in tears. And I could drive you down a winding road in Cherokee County. And to you, it would just look like a road. But to me, it would look like the place where the Spirit of God broke in and said, I'm going to talk to you all of the time. I want to be in constant conversation with you. And I could take you to an altar at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning where I saw giving my life for the fame of Jesus as more valuable than anything else. And you would just see some carpeted steps. And I could take you to a coffee shop on Atlanta Street, or I could take you to a back alley in East Atlanta where I took my coat off and I gave it to a homeless man. And I was convinced that day that I'd entertained an angel in my midst. I could take you to these places, but for you, you might not be able to see them. They wouldn't make sense to you if you haven't been born again. And that's what Jesus is saying right here is that there is this invitation, there is this offer to an otherworldly existence. There is so much more than meets the eye. It is veiled, though, for those who have not been born again. For those who have not been born again, it will look weird, and it will look strange, and it will look like a waste, and they will laugh, and they will mock, and they will stand in confusion. But for those who have, they will know that it is more precious than life itself. You know, it's really exciting, this idea of getting born again. It should be. I mean, there's nothing more exciting in life than birth, is there? When you find out that a couple who's been longing to get pregnant, that they're finally pregnant, and that the baby is finally coming, that the day is here. It brings about so much more, so, so much excitement. Well, I want for you to know tonight that even more than a physical baby being born, there's nothing more exciting than when someone gets born again into the kingdom of God. When they wake up to real life, to true life, to eternal life. So the question tonight is, how does it happen? How do you get born again? How do you leave behind cold, empty, stale, conventional Christianity that seems to be dying all around us? How do we leave behind the empty shell of religion that does not produce life and actually experience the fullness of the kingdom of God? I'm so glad that you asked. Nicodemus did too. John chapter three, verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Nicodemus starts where all of us start. Yeah? He starts logically. He starts intellectually. He says, explain this to me, Jesus. How does this work? Because this doesn't make sense. Be born again? How can this be? Something does not compute. And he just gets very practical. He's like, Jesus, I'm looking at my mother's womb and I'm looking at me. I don't know how you're gonna fit this peg into that hole. I don't know how this is gonna work. Can an old man go back into his mother's womb again? And he begins to debate with Jesus on this physical plane. He begins to talk to Jesus on practical terms, but it's about so much more than intellect for Nicodemus. Something else is going on here. This is a defense mechanism. Nicodemus is using what we might see as logic or as intellect to hide, to masquerade around in the dark, to use this intellect as a cover-up for his fear. You see, Nicodemus knows that if I can intellectually reason my way out of this, then I don't have to confront what I know is true and that I've been avoiding. And it's this, that to experience life with Jesus, I'm gonna have to give my life to Jesus. Nicodemus is going, if I can just put this in some argumentative box and make it so complex or so distanced that I don't have to deal with it, that I don't have to fit, come to terms with reality, that what Jesus is asking for is everything. He's asking for everything. He's asking for all of me. Nicodemus goes, how can I be born again? One of the things that he's saying there is he's going, I am the way that I am. Have you ever heard somebody say this before? Well, I'm just, I'm just the way that I am. It's just the way that I am. I was just born this way. I'm sorry. You know, it's just that person being that person. I just am the way that I am. And that is what cold, lifeless religion does to us is it consigns us to being in this stale state of conformity and of not experiencing who Jesus actually wants to turn us into. Jesus says, this is who I am thinking must go out the window if you want to be born again. And so this idea of being born again, a better translation of it would be born from above, born from above. If you wanted to get very nuanced with the language, it would be born from above again. And so this word again just kind of became the popular translation um, when we were translating the King James Bible, but mo like the, the most literal real translation would be born from above again. It's this thing that isn't a physical birth, that happens again, but it is this spiritual birth that comes from above. And, and you have to remember here who Jesus is talking to. He is talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to someone who is so well acquainted in the popular things happening within Judaism. He is acquainted with the Old Testament. He knows all the writings of, uh, of Moses. He's, he's got all of the motifs and pictures and symbols of Hebrew literature memorized. And so when he is when he is having this 
sparring match, this Q&A session with Nicodemus, this debate, if you will, of going back and forth. Jesus is using these pictures and these symbolisms and these little breadcrumbs that you and I might not see initially with our American eyes, but with closer study, with more intentional work, we can see what Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus. He says, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. And so in, in first century Jewish practice, the only way that non-Jewish converts could become Jewish, the, the only way that non-Jewish people could convert and become Jewish, um, they were called children who were newly born. Children who were newly born. And Nicodemus would have known this. He would have known that one of the ways for me to embrace uh, becoming a Jew is to become this person who's a children who's newly born. And so he's going, hey, you Nicodemus, who's the highest of the high, who's climbed the ladder of Judaism, who's leading in the Sanhedrin, if you actually want to participate in the kingdom of God, you're going to have to become like one of these children who are newly born born. In essence, what he is saying is that if you want to experience the kingdom, you've got to learn to be human all over again. You've got to throw out everything that you think that you know, and you've got to embrace this childlike faith of saying, teach me, Jesus. Show me your ways. Teach me your voice. Give me your heart. I'm a new child learning to do life all over again. He says that you must be born of water and the spirit. And this is the topic of great debate within commentating circles. If you were to look at what theologians and pastors and professors say about this, there is a multitude of interpretations of what Jesus is meaning by you must be born of water and the spirit. And they're all extremely intriguing. And I would love to be able to walk you through all of them tonight in intense detail. There are debates about if the water means the, the natural water of like when a woman's uh, water breaks when she gives birth to a child. And so what Jesus is saying is you've got to be human to be born again, right? Like qualification number one. Other people think that what he's talking about here is the water is actually the water of the word. The word is synonymous with water throughout scripture. And so the water must be, or the word must be preached and then the spirit must move in order for you to be born again. Um, some people, and this is one that I would say is like wrong. You should take this out of the camp. This is not what Jesus is saying is that you must must be baptized to be born again, that if you are not actually go into the waters of baptism, then you're not born again for a lot of reasons that we don't have time to get into tonight. That's not what Jesus is saying in this text. But what most commentators, theologians agree is that what Jesus is actually doing here is he's taking two ideas and he's compressing them into one. So it's not born of the water and the spirit, but born of the water of the spirit. So Nicodemus would have known this. Nicodemus would have known that from Genesis till uh, Malachi, all throughout the Old Testament, that there is this consistent picture of the spirit of God that shows up as water. In Genesis chapter one, there's the spirit of God hovering over the water, that the spirit is seen as the rivers that come out of Eden, that as wine or oil or water is poured out, the spirit of God is poured out on his people. There would be this chief text of Ezekiel 36 that would be echoing in Nicodemus's mind when Jesus talks about you've got to be born of water in the spirit that he wouldn't have been able to escape. And this is what he would have known. Something has to happen in the heavenly spaces where God opens up the heavens, pours out his spirit into my heart. And so that a, a moment happens where I see my need to start all over again. 
I see that I don't have all of this figured out and that I am in desperate need of God and that it's not going to happen of my, of my own accord, that it's not gonna happen because of my good works. It's not gonna happen because of anything that I bring to the table, but because of what God does, because of the way that he pours out his spirit. Nicodemus would have realized that we have this disease called sin and that we are broken beyond repair and that the greatest miracle that ever happens is not when Jesus turns water into wine, it's when Jesus turns sinners into saints. That the greatest miracle that ever happens is not when God creates physical life in a mother's womb, it's when God creates spiritual life in a, in a human being. This is the greatest miracle that God performs. Theologically, this is what we uh, know as regeneration. Regeneration is what puts new life in us, in us. Spiritual birth, and it's this deep abiding thing it's not turning over a new leaf. It's new life. It changes us from the inside out. We become traumatically, dramatically a different person. It's the life of God that is input into us. And it's this, this understanding that when this happens, I get a new mind and I get a new heart and I get a new will and I get new affections, and I get new desires, and I get new habits, and I get a new value system, and I get new priorities, and I get a new schedule, and I get new rhythms, and I get total transformation starts to happen because of this new birth that happens in me. Now, Jesus moves on from that to he begins to talk about the wind, which we're gonna come back to at the end of tonight. Uh, but this idea of the wind and the water, it's just this picture of the spirit of God, the ruach of God, the breath of God, the same life that brought, the, the same breath or wind that brought life to Adam in Genesis is bringing spiritual life to you and me in this new birth. Conversation goes on between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Nicodemus begins to ask questions because some of these things just aren't landing easy on Nicodemus. They seem too distant, too ethereal, too out there. They're not concrete enough. I can't make sense of it in my mind. What you're, what you're saying, like there's, there's some missing thing that it's coming out of your mouth, but it's not landing in my mind. And so Nicodemus goes, how can this be? And I just want to draw your attention tonight to the fact that awakening is not opposed to questioning. Awakening actually loves questioning. If you want to wake up, bring all your questions to Jesus tonight. But awakening also necessitates humility. If you won't listen to me, Jesus says, by what I have proven, then how are you going to be able to talk? To, how am I going to be able to talk to you about heavenly things? Jesus is going, Nicodemus, you're the one who came to me. You're the one who's seen what I've done, who's heard rumors on the street about the miracles and the healings, and we're speaking about what we know and are participating in. And yet, if you won't believe us based upon the evidence, how are you gonna believe us about the things that we don't have evidence for? He goes, 
Nicodemus, you're going to have to lean in. You're going to have to open up. And then Jesus, he begins to leave these breadcrumbs for Nicodemus. And this is where the sermon takes a wild turn and becomes one of my favorite stories tonight. Jesus starts leaving these breadcrumbs for Nicodemus. Jesus says, I'm going to put an alarm on your phone, Nicodemus. I'm gonna put this reminder for when these things start to happen for you, for it to be this blaring alarm that causes you to wake up, that you can't miss. And he starts to talk to Nicodemus about this Old Testament story, this story of when the Jewish people were out in the wilderness and they were wandering. They were just going through the motions and these snakes started to come because they were complaining. They were complaining about God's providence and the way that God had provided and what they'd been through. And so they start complaining and they don't like the food that God is sending. This manna that's falling from heaven. And so these snakes start to come and they start to bite the people. But God provides a way for the people to be saved. He gives Moses this staff and on the staff, there's this golden staff. And, and as these people get bit by the snake, Moses says, hey, if you look to the staff, you will be healed. And so sure enough, these people get bit by the snake. They look to the staff, they experience healing. And Jesus goes, hey, Nicodemus, you expert in the law, you expert in the Torah. Do you remember that story of when the people, they were trapped in this cycle of going through the motions, of not experiencing breakthrough, of being frustrated with God. And then you remember the snakes and you remember that picture, that symbol that God gave them, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lift up this staff and if you will look at it, you'll experience healing. Nicodemus, I want for you to know that that same thing is going to happen again. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up, and then you will know that only in me is true awakening found. And then what happens is Jesus leads Nicodemus on this wild story that I want to take you on tonight. So um, I want for you to real quick fast forward four chapters. I want for you to flip over to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Now, I want to set the stage for what's going on here. Jesus is experiencing what's called the Feast of the Booths or Sakat. And it is this uh, celebration that the Hebrew people would experience. And initially, Jesus wasn't going to go to it. He was having this debate about whether or not he should go and whether or not he should show people who he is or whether or not he should just stay under wraps. But then eventually, he decides to come. He decides to show up at this feast. And when he is there, he actually quotes this great prophecy from Isaiah. And he invites, he says, hey, all who are thirsty, come and drink. Come and buy wine without money. Come eat and, and enjoy your portion without cost. He says, anyone who's thirsty, come and drink. And then there becomes this great debate. People start fighting over, I can't believe that Jesus said that. How would Jesus claim that? Is he actually the Messiah or is he not? And it's at this feast, at this tabernacle of the booths that Jesus and Nicodemus brush shoulders again. John chapter seven, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is this the Christ? Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? 
but the crowd, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. This is where I wanna draw your attention, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. All right, so in John chapter three, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a leader of the Sanhedrin, in the cover of night, veiled by darkness, comes to Jesus because conventional, uh, comfortable religion is failing Nicodemus. And he's wondering, is there more? And so in the middle of the night, Nicodemus engages with Jesus in this great dialogue. Is there more than this? And Jesus gives him this invitation. Yes, there is so much more than this. There's this beautiful, expansive kingdom of God. It's the place where God rules and reigns. It's the life of God and the soul of person. Nicodemus goes, how is this possible? Jesus goes, you must be born again. You've got to throw out everything that you thought that you knew. You've got to embrace this spirit of humility. You've got to go back to the beginning and become like a child. You've got to stop standing on your accolades and what you've achieved. And you've got to stop beating your chest about being in the Sanhedrin and being a Pharisee. You must empty yourself, all of that. Open yourself up to the spirit of God. Let the spirit of God invade your heart the way that water would invade parched land, pushing out everything that isn't of the kingdom, being made new. This comes from God. You can't produce it within yourself. Open yourself up to the wind of the spirit and watch what God does. Watch the kingdom that he has for you. Leave behind everything that you've known and embrace the kingdom of God. Four chapters later, Jesus is at this famous feast this one that he didn't even know if he was going to be at. There's all of this debate about who he is. He reads this scripture, anyone who's thirsty, come and drink. Anyone who's tired, come wake up or come experience sleep. Anyone who's asleep, come and wake up. Come experience the new life that I have for you. People start to get frustrated by the claims that Jesus makes. Some people wanna throw him in jail. People wanna arrest him. Some people want to lay hands on Jesus. And in the midst of that debate, Nicodemus says this incredible line, shouldn't we give Jesus a fair trial too? Shouldn't we give Jesus a fair trial too? Let me tell you part of the anatomy of awakening is that what starts in the darkness of the human heart always moves into the light of day. You see, Nicodemus before was so afraid about what people would think. That's why he came at night. He was afraid about being seen as someone who didn't have it figured out of vocalizing the fact that maybe he hadn't encountered God the way that he needed to encounter God. And so he came by night and Jesus read his mail. Jesus told him exactly what he knew he was going to find. He, he opened up the insides of Nicodemus's heart and said, I see you. I see that you're longing for more. Do you want it? Do you want the kingdom? And then this thing starts to build and Nicodemus, this discontent starts to grow and Nicodemus speaks up. Nicodemus outs himself as the person who's intrigued by Jesus, fascinated by Jesus. And he says, let's give this guy a fair shake. And if you want awakening tonight, then you've got to consider about whether or not you've actually given Jesus a fair trial whether you've actually deeply looked into who he is. I think one of the greatest errors of our times is that we have tragically miscalculated Jesus. 
We've reduced him down to a nice hippie giving out free hugs and we fail to see him as the sacrificial king whose arms are opened wide to die. We failed to see him for who he really is. We failed to actually put Jesus on trial and give him a fair shake. Here's the other thing that we see in this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus is that awakening does not come through spectating. Awakening does not come through spectating. It doesn't happen on the sideline. It involves risk. It's one thing to come to Jesus in the middle of the night when no one knows. It's another thing to on the temple steps in the light of the day, in the middle of all your friends, determine that I'm going to give Jesus a fair shake. To not just see what life looks like with him in secret, but to see what life looks like with him in public. And this is a massive moment in the life of Nicodemus where he goes, I'm going to take all of these things that I've been wondering about in here and I'm gonna set them out here. Some of you have never taken that step. You've never actually sat down with a group of people and deeply considered, okay, who really is this Jesus and what might he mean for my life? All right, now I want for you to flip 12 chapters later. Flip to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 38. Let me fill you in on the story as you're flipping there. If you remember what Jesus told Nicodemus must happen in John chapter three, well, that's happened. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, the son of man was lifted up on the cross. In the middle of the night, Jesus was praying in a garden. He came and he was arrested and he was tried and he was sentenced to death. And he died a public execution on a cross in front of a large crowd. And it appears that on that day when Jesus died, that Nicodemus was in the crowd too. John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Can you just imagine being Nicodemus for a second? You're sitting there in the Sanhedrin day after day, year after year. You feel like you've explored the depths of everything that religion has to offer. You've been to every conference. You've sat through every church service. You've sang every song. You've heard every illustration and every analogy. But in the middle of the night, something starts to gnaw at your chest. You start to wonder if there's, if there's more than this, if there's something real out there. And so in the middle of the night, you go to Jesus and you're disgruntled, you're discontent with life as you know it. And you begin to engage in this Q&A with Jesus and Jesus just reads your mail. He pushes you to the brink and you're faced with the decision of whether or not you're just gonna go back to life as you know it or whether or not you're gonna do something with what you've heard that there is this opportunity to be born again. This thing that we've all wanted before. We've all had that moment where we wish that we could go back and we could do life again, where we wish we could just erase all of the sins and all of the wrong and all of the tragic error, where we could erase all of the wasted time, 
where we go back with everything that we know now and live life again. And Jesus goes, that's available. That's possible. So Nicodemus is faced with this reality. I wonder what that walk home back was like that night as he's contemplating this, as he's wrestling with it in his soul. A couple of days, a couple of weeks, months later, he's at the temple. He's got this thing in his mind that's just thinking about the kingdom of God and what Jesus has said. And I'm supposed to be a teacher of Israel. I'm supposed to know the past. And here's Jesus going, hey, you know what the prophets have prophesied about you who are thirsty, wanting to drink, you who are tired, receiving rest, you who are asleep, coming awake. That is fulfilled in me. And I decide in front of my friends, I think I might need to give Jesus a fair trial. And I'm not saying that I'm all in. I'm not ready, quite ready to join the assembly of the fanatics, but I'm definitely asking some deeper questions. I'm definitely leaning more into what Jesus is doing and the things that Jesus is saying. But then one Friday, you're just minding your business. You're just getting ready for temple the next day and to practice the Sabbath, but something happens. This big crowd breaks out and there's this fuss and there's all of this commotion and these rumors start to spread that this Jesus of Nazareth has been put on trial, real trial, and that he's been condemned a criminal. And so you join the crowds and you're standing there somewhere and you see it happen right before your eyes, the very thing that Jesus said would happen. The son of man must be lifted up just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. And in that moment, I've just got to almost imagine that Nicodemus' heart melts in his chest as the gospel unfolds in front of him. He's the one. He's the one I've been waiting for. He's the one I've been longing for. And everything he said, it's true. It's absolutely, positively true. Nicodemus is pushed to the limits of his cognitive ability. He begins to search within him for what must I do next? He's seeing all of the prophecy, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 11, Psalm 69, just come to life before him. So I think that in the crowd on that Friday, Nicodemus, who has been on this journey of waking up, decides to take the covers off, to step out of bed, and to experience new life. Nicodemus goes with Joseph of Arimathea, and he betrays the Sanhedrin, whom he's a member of. He turns his back on the Pharisees who just executed Jesus, and he says, I'm gonna give this man a proper burial and he takes 75 pounds i just want for you to imagine for a second 75 pounds you can't carry 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh around secretly people are gonna see so it's obvious that he spent money on this that it's heavy that it's costly and he takes it and he buys what he needs to buy to be able to give jesus a proper burial and Many believe, me included, at this moment, Nicodemus becomes a disciple of Jesus and he has this spiritual awakening. And I think that it happens because he sees John 3.16 unfold before his eyes. 
He sees the love of God on display for him in an undeniable way. He sees all these breadcrumbs that Jesus has been leaving along the way. And he goes, I get it. I need it. I want to be born again. And so what do we do with a message like tonight? A message that feels relatively abstract, a, a message that feels less concrete and less certain and that stirs something up in our soul for more, but that leaves us not knowing how to get it. And this is where we'll go back to the part about the wind. I think tonight that if you want awakening, what I would tell you is that you need to get close to the wind. There are places where the wind is more likely to blow. We know this. If you get close to the sea, you get close to the coast, you get close to the water, the wind is more likely to blow. And if you want awakening, there are gonna be some places that the spirit is more likely to move, yes, in church, but man, in people who are on fire for the Lord, just get close to them. Get your life around them. Get close to the wind. Go on a mission trip. Get in a prayer room. Show up early for prayer. Get close to the wind. Here's the second thing that I would say is remove the walls. Remove the walls. If you want awakening, it may not be tonight that the wind isn't blowing. It just may be that there are walls up and that's why you can't sense it. There are walls about what you think your life should be and is going to be. There are walls of sin or there are walls of patterns that you've just put up that are keep, that's keeping the wind of the spirit from blowing on your life. So get close to the wind, but also tear down the walls. And then here's the final thing that I would say is hoist the sail. If you wanna catch the wind of the spirit, hoist the sail, you've gotta open yourself up. Nicodemus came, he was literally willing to bury all of his religion, to pursue the heart of Jesus and open himself up and go, there may be something I don't know. There may be something I don't have. There may be something I don't, I don't have figured out. And so tonight for you, it literally may be looking like just coming to get on your knees at the altar. It may be, it may look like you just opening your hands with your palms toward heaven saying, God, I'm open. I want the new birth. I want new life. I want for you to make your home in me. Here's what I know tonight is that like Nicodemus, the religious person is the hardest person on the planet to reach for the kingdom. The person who thinks that they are so religiously put together that they don't need to be born again. And I just wanna tell you tonight that you do, that you desperately, desperately need this, that you need the spirit of God to invade hidden places, secret places, and bring the life that only he can bring. Are you tired of the stagnant? Are you tired of the dry? Do you wanna see dead streams start to flow again? Then open up to Jesus tonight. Get close to the wind, tear down the walls and hoist your sail. Come on, let's pray. Jesus, I know that awakening is not something that I can produce. It's not something that a song creates. It's something that your spirit, your Holy Spirit brings. So God, we just wanna open up to you tonight. God, we wanna leave behind 
practices of conventional, safe, calculated Christianity that do not produce everlasting life. And we wanna experience the fullness of the kingdom. Jesus, I pray that tonight you would just give us childlike faith. Jesus, I pray that tonight that you would read our mail, that you would show us that you already know the questions that we're asking and wrestling with in the deep parts of our soul. Jesus, I pray that you would do something supernatural tonight. Something that feels like rebirth tonight. God, just create in us this discontent that knows there is more, there is so much more. There is a relationship with you that is wild and that is brilliant, that is beautiful, that is satisfying, that feels like a dance, that gets better every day. Jesus is the only way forward. So God, I just pray that there would be people who would come out of hiding tonight, who would pursue you, who would not miss you, who would open up to you, and who would truly encounter you. And I pray it in your beautiful name, all God's people said, amen.